welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Hi, I'm Stacey Garcia, and welcome to Furniture Today's On the Record podcast. If you're like me, you need to keep up with the news and stay ahead of the trends to know what's happening and to know what's going to happen in the home furnishings industry. And there's no better source than Bill McLaughlin and Furniture Today's On the Record. Let's listen in and hear what Bill and his guests have in store for us today. My guest this week on On the Record is Jonathan Bass, CEO of PTM Images and Whom Home. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you for joining me this week. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, let's let me just tell folks how we happen to get connected. Um, as everybody is aware, there has been uh, a real issue with the coronavirus getting goods out of China and uh, Vietnam. It's impacted the supply chain. Uh, and you have reached out not only to us, but to other members of the media because you see that as an opportunity for companies that uh, have capacity in manufacture elsewhere. Um, and in particular, you're very active in Mexico. You have uh, been a, a longtime proponent of onshoring to America and North America. Um, tell me why you decided at this time you felt it was uh, appropriate to start letting people know what the opportunity is in Mexico. You know, Bill, one, one of the biggest issues that I see is that we're waiting and waiting for things to change and open up. And in that period, we're burning the most valuable asset we have, which is time. And time to, to pivot supply chain and bring it close to the proximity of the market is what we're, we're gonna face if we run into any types of shortages that you see are going on on TV in Italy or in Asia or in Australia or certain regions of the world that this pandemic is spreading. So. I'm trying to raise a white flag and say, hey, you guys, look down here. Let's let's get going. Let's not waste time. Let's let's dig in, get shovel ready and start moving productions to to supply, you know, our ultimate customer, the consumer. And why should the consumer go through any pain or shortages? Because we decided, you know, to wait five, six, eight, 12 weeks until we see where this thing all goes. Now, even though you are now kind of, as you say, raising the white flag, this is not something that you just suddenly, it's not like you just magically appeared in Mexico with factories. This is something you've been doing for a number of years. What was the impetus for your focus on North American manufacturing and what we could call onshoring or reshoring, anyone, any number of the names that people apply to it? So initially I started out on, I was uh, one of the vendor um, one of the vendor committee members for onshoring and bringing back manufacturing to America under the Walmart Made in USA program. And we were working with Boston Consulting Group in trying to figure out the best way to onshore factories to um, uh, the North America. So when I saw what was going on and where I felt that, that supply chain was leading, I really felt that it was probably best to invest into my own factory. And I picked Mexico because 
what it did was it gave me the best of both worlds. It gave me the ability to source better raw materials from high paying North American jobs and using lower cost assembly labor in Mexico to finish those goods. So it was more a, strate- a strategic decision as, as far as where my location would be. Um, and really from a, a standpoint of raw material sourcing and that's where it began. And I felt that in the long term, we had to bring manufacturing back closer to the point of consumption because it's called proximity manufacturing because the consumer, all the reports that we were being showed at that time, that the consumer was going to be more exigent on what they wanted, how they wanted it, when they wanted it, and where they wanted it. And the only way you could do that was reducing your supply chain uh, and getting rid of the ocean freight and transit time. So that's why we picked Mexico. Mm -hmm. Now, just to be clear, in terms of what you can successfully bring back to Mexico and what, to some extent, furniture tends to be a um, a very low-margin, challenging cost business. Nobody can afford to have any extra costs. You are not manufacturing promotional goods in Mexico, correct? This is something that... Correct. Okay. And is that... that is that an... I presume that's an intentional positioning, right? Because well, there's only so low you can go there. We, we started, you know, I went in with big eyes, right? And I thought at first, hey, I can do what the Chinese can do. You know, we could do it in Mexico. And I thought we could go after the low-cost business um, with the low-cost supply. And it took me a couple of years to really figure out that I couldn't hit the ever lowering price, you know, because as you hit their price, they lowered it another 5%. Or if you hit that price, then they lowered that another 5%. So as you got in to figure out how to, to be competitive and hit their low opening price points, you, you were never, it was a moving target and it was forever going lower. So what we did was we tried to retool and look at what our assets were. And in Mexico, the labor is a little better asset than say low cost manufacturing. You, you can get better quality goods out of Mexico. The labor is more attuned to that market. So we went from low cost to launching uh, Badgley Mishka Home, which was a high cost uh, furniture line competing with the likes of Fendi Casa, Armani Casa, Ralph Lauren Home. Uh, and we were so successful that we were actually invited to Milan Salone uh, the year after we launched, which was one of only four companies to be invited that year into Salone. Um, so it, we, we knew we hit the mark as far as the quality, price point, look, differentiation, and um, uniqueness of product. What we found was that the American market was just not buying a lot of high-end goods. It became apparent that they they really were moving more towards the mid or high um, product category. And so we then went back to the drawing board and said, okay, well, we've got this high-end brand. Let's try to let's try to find something in the middle 
that would work really well. And so um, at first we went out and we actually started looking for some brands to put into that space. Mm -hmm. And then we decided that really we would be best off just creating our own brand that had our, had an affinity and a link to the origin of what we were trying to do. So that's when we created Whom Home. And why we created Whom Home was it was all about who manufactures your furniture, for who, by who, made for whom, you know. And so it was all about transparency and production on your furniture and what you're bringing and inviting into your home. And that was sort of our premise of Whom Home. Now, you also, as part of the Whom Home story, you have made it uh, a focus on sustainability. How, how does that play out in that brand's positioning? So initially, really what we were doing for sustainability was we wanted to see how we could take more trash out of the landfill than we were putting in. So it began with looking at um, how do we manufacture our frame molding for our picture frame uh, mirrors and wall decor lines. So we started to look at polystyrene as a very hard to recycle material. Uh, EPS, expandable polystyrene, the, the, the material that comes with your TV, you know, wrapped with your TV or, or your dark coffee cup. And we wanted to see how we could recycle that product and repurpose it and close the loop into manufacturing um, material that we could then uh, put into someone's home. So yeah, currently we recycle the equivalent of the Sears Tower every year in polystyrene, diverting it out of the landfill. So that was the beginning. We then went to Walmart and asked them, you know, let's, can we look in your return centers and see what are hard to recycle materials that we could maybe divert? And we started with the playground sets that were being landfilled at the end of summer. So we started making reclaimed wood furniture with those. Um, and then from there, we just sort of moved to very um, hard to recycle products that um, were, were available. And then we tried to build what can we take and make it into what. So then that's when we started looking at, when we ran out of playground sets, we started looking at floorboards and other wood that we could get out of um, the U.S. and bring down to Mexico to making it into picture frame molding and then ultimately into furniture. So once we somewhat ran out of the availability of this reclaimed wood, then we started looking at, okay, how do we not just buy wood from a third party? Um, how do we buy wood that's really sustainably growing. So we went in and we looked at the growers in America and looked at who is planting more trees against uh, what they're harvesting. So it takes about 40 years to harvest a tree. So by the time they harvest the trees that we're utilizing right now in our furniture, I'm gonna be like, you know, close to a hundred. So. I really felt that that was an important thing that I'm really paying it forward to make sure that we're we're planting more. Um, Congress actually, we went in and and pitched this to uh, House leadership, 
and the House leadership has actually proposed a trillion tree planting program around the country now um, out of Representative Kevin McCarthy's office. So they're they're pushing now this uh, the awareness of planting more trees than we're consuming or that the world is chopping down whether legally or illegally. <clears throat> so that's that's sort of where we got into it and where it sort of led to. And uh, let me ask, how has the response been on the consumer end? Because very often um, I talk to companies and in theory, consumers are in favor of these things. And when it comes to actually voting with their dollars or um, being willing to pay if there's any kind of an upcharge, it's like, hey, that's great. I'll be sustainable. Just don't charge me a penny extra. I love made in the USA. Just don't charge me extra. How have you found the consumer um, response and receptivity to that message of sustainability and recycling? So I think that that has changed over time. I think that when my generation, you know, we wanted more consumer goods for lower prices, you know, whereas our grandparents kept their sofa and maybe changed it two times in their entire life. And then our parents maybe changed it three times in their entire life you know, this new generation, and maybe we we changed it four or five times in our lifetime. This new generation is looking at furniture as a, um, you know, more consumable item. That being said, they then turned around and said, wow, look at the impact that has on my environment. And now they're coming around saying, you know what, we may not want to buy cheap one-use furniture. We may want to move into more um, sustainable furniture. So maybe we get seven years out of a sofa and it still looks good. Uh, maybe we move with it two or three times because the average uh, consumer today in the millennial consumer is moving every 18 months, the average. So they're looking and they're, they're also tending to live different, you know, where we would never share housing millennials are sharing housing. So couples will share apartments, two bedroom apartments. So there's more use, uh, more people in play on the decision-making on what the public space of their apartments or homes will look like. So with that comes this change in mindset and the change in mindset um, that are they willing to pay for it? When we first started this Made in USA initiative under the leadership of Bill Simon and Duncan McNaughton at Walmart um, and Greg Hall, we were really looking at, you know, the consumer would pay 5% more is what, you know, we were looking at the numbers. And today, you know, we're looking at the fact that the consumer is not really looking at a 5% differential. And in fact, I think that what you're going to find is that prices are going up. It doesn't matter where, um, whether it's, you know, in China, in Vietnam, in Cambodia, in Thailand, you know, Cambodia is 25% less efficient to manufacture in than China is. So, but it's cheaper than China currently, but it's less efficient. So it makes it a little bit or more expensive or, you know, at, at even. And Vietnam is sort of capacitied out. You know, you're looking at right now, just from a labor standpoint, that 80 million workers are back to work in China, and there's 120 million workers 
that are on their way supposedly back to work um, for those that can get back to work. But that in and of itself is about 200 million workers. Well, Vietnam is only 100 million people in total. So when you look at it, 100 million people can never produce what, and of that 100 million, there's 30 million available working, right? So you could never get the 200 million labor force back out of Vietnam, Cambodia, or Thailand. So there's there's definitely issues, and that means that the consumer is going to have to be willing and ready to pay more for their products. And so price will change. Um, Low-cost goods aren't going to be the determining factor. Uh, competitively priced goods are going to be more where it's going to, I think, end up. But the consumer is in flux, and this millennial consumer, I think, has a different preference to their shopping habits. They're looking for buying goods and services that meet their shared values, and their shared values not, are not only price-driven, uh, they're sustainably driven. I mean, that's why if you look at like Rent the Runway and um, these these operations that have come where people would rent clothing, your wife and my wife would never have rented clothing before, you know, and mm -hmm. sent it back. But this generation is more conscious. They would rather say, okay, you know what, I'm going to rent, I'm going to pay for the evening on this dress and I'm going to send it back. Well, it's interesting so, that you mentioned that one of the um, fastest growing new furniture channels that we're seeing pop up over the last 12 months uh, is furniture subscription services, which is effectively a rental model. Um, we probably have written stories about six new furniture subscription services popping up just over the last four or five months. And there were several, you know, like Feather and Inhabitor and others like uh, of that so it seems like this generation is very receptive to that sharing model, right? That sharing economy, whether it's ride sharing, clothes sharing, or even furniture sharing. Right. And I think the furniture sharing issue becomes more difficult as you tend to take into account cleaning. Because when you rent a, a dress, okay, you or a, a suit, a tuxedo, which we've you know, tuxedo rental has been around for as long as I can remember, right? Um, but when you look at tuxedo rental or, or clothing rental, it goes back, it's washed, it's hemmed, it's cleaned. The problem with furniture is it's harder to transport in and out and clean and take care of. So it ends up becoming more of a one-use product and the consumer in the 18 months basically pays for it. And then it's returned and it's either sold at, you know, or given away to Habitat of Humanity. So it's, it is a model that's there. The question is, is it a profitable model for the future? And a lot of these dot-com companies come in thinking, okay, we just need mass scale and top-line growth. We can lose you know, we can sell $7 billion and lose a billion dollars and no one's going to care. But right now, I think that the after the WeWork issue and some of these IPOs that didn't happen because of extreme losses, 
I think that that mindset is going to change. So these these models have to prove that they're going to be profitable models because to change out a sofa or a, a love seat with $99 after two months, you and I know being in the furniture business, there's just no way financially that you can, you can get to that and, mm-hmm. and make money. It, the, that pickup and delivery is costing you far more than $99. And the, um, the fixing of that sofa after a month or two months of use uh, may require, you know, a whole whole slew of things from re reupholstering the item, having the fabrics. I mean, so it's a lot more complicated than just renting a dress or a pair of shoes and sending them back. Isn't that always the case? Logistics always weighs in in furniture in a way that it does not in any other category. Correct. And logistics weighs in environmentally. I mean, what, what I like to compare is why, why is proximity manufacturing just so important to, to occur? Why in our industry is it so important for proximity manufacturing to come back to, to North America? And it, it's an environmental issue. You know, 15 of the largest container ships, if you Google it, equate to 780 million automobiles in pollution per year. So if you cut 780 million automobiles and convert them all to electricity and have no emission, you've only taken care of 15 of the container ships that transport globalized uh, movement of, of goods. So there's 53,900 cargo ships in the world. So 15 container ships has a lot greater impact and a a footprint in our environment, heating our oceans than do automobiles. So we need to look at how we reinvent our logistic system to have a lower impact in our environment. And each manufacturer is responsible, not to price, but we're responsible to the world that we leave for our children, our grandchildren. We're responsible to ethically source, not only free trade, fair trade, but ethical trade. We're all our own bosses and we all make our own decisions. And one person can impact the world in a much greater way today than any other time before us. Nothing like hearing it straight from the experts, huh? It's me, Stacey Garcia again, and I've got exciting news for you designers and retailers out there. I've been working with Klausner Home Furnishings to create design-forward collections for their comfort design and outdoor lines. You can check them out at the upcoming High Point Market. Let's get back to Bill and his guests. My guest this week is Jonathan Bass, CEO of PTM Images and Whom Home. Uh, Jonathan, I'd like to look a little bit, um, we've been talking kind of in broad general terms, but I'd like to look right now at what is happening right at this moment um, and the, the impact that the coronavirus is having, not just on China, but downstream. Even though you manufacture in Mexico, 
the coronavirus is impacting your ability to get components and supply, isn't it? How is that impacting it? So, you know, I take this back to when I first opened up in Mexico in 2010 uh, and we turned on the lights in July of 2011. It was very, 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 very difficult to get raw material supplies. So we had to find ways that were unique and different to find raw materials because after everybody left to China and the US and went, you know, after the WTO opened up China uh, market, um, the raw material suppliers also left because there was no customer for their raw material. So when we opened up, we had no raw material supply. So in today's world where the WTO is affecting everybody from iPhones, I hope you don't break your iPhone because you're going to wait a long time for a replacement iPhone screen, but it it will impact everybody from plastic plates and utensils to, you know, a a slew slew of uh, general merchandise products. I mean, garlic today is 90% uh, imported out of China. Garlic will tend to become a problem because we don't have um, garlic supplied domestically because people aren't growing it. But the ingenuity of Americans is that we're very resilient people and we pivot and we turn we look at our hands and we make our moves. And so you will start to see that people will start to start to plant uh, garlic again and start to go after that domestic market. And you'll start to see that people will, you know, start making chips for computers back again, like Intel did when they started. And we will have to make these hard choices in our boardrooms to move manufacturing supply and raw material supply back. Now, the question is how long will it take? Well, you know, we're a country who's built, you know, sent men to the moon, planning to send men to live on Mars. Uh, We build space stations, we build land rovers that, you know, cover the lunar surface. We're very capable people. it's really up to our boardrooms and our corporate leadership to make those hard decisions to say, okay, the tea leaves are telling us this is what we need to do. We need to lean in and do it. And I think what's happened is the president, by putting these tariffs over the last couple of years, has sort of told our corporate American or the globalists out there saying, hey, look, you need to pivot your supply chains or we're going to make them cost equal to the market. And although he, you know, put tariffs on China, it's not saying the tariffs won't be put on other countries. So no matter where you end up going, it's going to be like playing whack-a-mole because they'll start putting tariffs on other countries that are transshipping Chinese merchandise through. Well, I believe he's already intimated that Vietnam could eventually see tariffs. I believe there was a a tweet to that effect. Correct. And India, although he's in India, leaving India now, India also, he's, you know, has mentioned that tariffs could come. I mean, he's put tariffs on uh, companies that are supplying or purchasing Iran. And Iran's number one customer 
is Asian countries. You know, they're buying Iranian oil, they're buying Iranian metal. Um, so he's, you know, our American government uh, may be slow sometimes to react, but they're definitely not stupid. So I believe that tariffs are there to protect the national security of our country. And that's actually why well, I believe, I think it was in 1789 that they were written in as, as the ability to be utilized to protect our national security. And supply chain is a national security of our country. You know, the fact that we can have shoes and put shoes on our kids' feet is a national security. I mean, if we don't have shoes, there's a problem. Yeah, I mean, so it, it doesn't matter if it's pharmaceuticals, if it's shoes, if it's Lagan and Platt hardware, we, all of it matters to our national security. And we need to make sure that our corporate companies within America take care of the, the American citizens by supplying the, at least the basic goods domestically so that we don't go without. Um, and those are things that I think will transition. Now, taking my experience, it took a while for me to get raw material supplied domestically. But currently we're down to importing just two or three items out of China. Yeah, let's which, talk about that for a minute. You actually gave a, an interview to Bloomberg recently um, and you were talking about specifically things like aluminum-backed mirrors, door hinges, polyester, polyester pillow fiber. Um, tell me about what, it, what challenges you're having in that regard and how you're dealing with so, them. So, you know, in the current retail environment, we have the manufacturer and we have the retailer or the end con and going that's, that's the bridge to the end consumer. So manufacturers typically run, you know, with a five or 6%, 7% margin. The retailer is running with, you know, a 70, 80% gross margin. And the consumer is buying, you know, the goods they think that are sit at a particular value proposition. I think what's going to happen is take, for example, in mirror, I can replace my Chinese mirror that's aluminum backed mirror with a better product made in the US, it's called a silver-backed mirror. The Chinese mirror is made in two millimeter thickness. The Chinese, uh, the American mirror is made with a three millimeter glass. So when you look at it, the domestically manufactured mirror glass is gonna be more expensive. It's not dramatically more expensive. It's just a little bit more expensive. So someone's got to give either prices have to go up to accommodate it, or there's going to be a margin disruption for the retailer, which is very difficult for them because of the high cost of up, you know, real estate operations. But the manufacturer doesn't have the margin to eat that differentiation. So we're either going to accept certain changes in our product supply. Polyester fill can be quickly manufactured here because we can take recycling of polyester and start to put it into polyester fill. On hinges and metal hinges, um, again, that's a product that can be made 
you know, in Latin America or in the United States at a competitive price. It's not a very high-tech manufactured item that requires, you know, a huge capital investment to make. So that can pivot. The areas we're going to have problems in pivoting are component boards for machinery that are, are sourced out of Asia. As soon as you end up losing or burning out component boards in your equipment, it's going to be hard to get replacement of those component boards uh, within it. And th that, those are going to be challenges that, are, that could hurt us very quickly is if we have uh, an influx of these higher tech um, operating boards for our machines. I mean, we run robotics, we run extrusion, we run a lot of equipment with high tech boards in it. Um, it's going to be tough to get those boards, you know, replaced. And although equipment may be manufactured in Italy or the U.S., the boards are coming predominantly out of Asia. So I think certain supply will be easily pivoted with the will and the push of our administration and our, our, our leaders. Uh, but I think the coronavirus basically takes the queen off the table and it leaves us with no option because the coronavirus is spreading at a rate of six where the SARS virus uh, was spreading at a rate of 1.6. So your, SAR, your SARS virus didn't, um, was not transmittable on hard surfaces. Whereas the coronavirus, CNN reported the other week that the coronavirus can live on a hard surface outside for a minimum of nine days. That's why you see the Chinese spraying the sidewalks with bleach and spray, spraying automobiles. It's, it's because they're transmittable on hard surfaces. I'd like so, to, if I could, you, you talked about yeah. pivoting. That, the, the type of pivoting that you're talking about, that's the kind of thing that generally... Um, we're talking about time frames of uh, at least a year, two years, sometimes longer to, uh, I mean, and we're seeing some of that in Vietnam, right? Where factories, people rushed to Vietnam, opened up factories, but getting the workers, training the workers, getting them up to speed, achieving the same level of efficiency, all of that takes time. So the pivoting that you're talking about, that's the kind of thing that would be measured in years. The coronavirus impact I suspect, and you know, I'm not a, a medical expert, but I think we're yeah. probably talking about the impact of that being in months and having an impact. From your standpoint, do you expect to see widespread price increases across the industry over the, the first half of this year? Do you think we're going to see as a result of this companies forced to take price increases? I'm telling all my friends, you better go out and buy what you need right now because this is the cheapest you're going to see it. The supply and the demand are going to dictate pricing. And companies who have, I, I would hate to be running with an ad right now on TV for a $5.99 sofa, because the likelihood of you being able to deliver that $5.99 sofa for very long is going to be a challenge. The, the issue on the coronavirus and going back to pivoting a second, it depends what we're pivoting. You know, I was listening uh, in one of uh, 
Senate hearings where Lighthizer was being uh, questioned, there was Governor Hassan uh, that had said, hey, we have a problem with a company that manufactures sleeping bags and there are 25 people and they're being, you know, hurt by the tariff. And I turned around and I said, there's a thousand sewing machines in one company in LA that they've got in stock that are ready and, and willing to go to work. You can buy those thousand sewing machines and you can start cutting and sewing sleeping bags. You know, the other one was Hume out of um, the Dakotas said that Polaris was being affected unduly because he can't make ATVs without China. And I was like, we make lunar Land Rovers. Why can't we make ATVs in America? So you, we can make these and these pivots aren't long. That's why we need our neighbors. That's why we need Honduras, Ecuador, Guatemala, Mexico. We need our neighbors to help us jump in, lean in, and fix our supply chain. These guys are far more resilient. They have labor that's standing by and that could jump in, and, and they know what they're doing. They, they haven't been sleeping for the last 25 years that we went to China. They've, they've had to stay somewhat existing. So I think that it's going to take our retailers and our supply chain people a lot of work to start to find alternative sources so that we're not looking two years out to replacing supply chain because someone will figure it out. So say for example, tomorrow, if you have no more socks coming out of China, I guarantee you there's gonna be some ingenious American businessman that's gonna find socks out of somewhere that's gonna be making socks and selling socks. You know. It's it's harder when you're used to running in a particular fashion and you have those blinders on that you put on your workhorses and you don't look left and right. But it becomes easier when you lean in and you start taking some hard decisions and hard choices and people have to work. You know, it's been easy in supply chain. You go to China, you go twice a year, you get in a car, you drive for three weeks from factory to factory. You do all your buying for the year and you go home. That's no longer going to be the way. We're going to go back to the time of the buyers of Hudson Bay and Selfridges, the merchants, the real merchants of Selfridges, Hudson Bay, Sears and Roebuck, where they weren't bean counters, but they were true merchants traveling the world, finding the best products and bringing them into uh, our stores. And that's what they're going to have to do. They're going to have to go back to old-fashioned merchandising. And that's what's going to come. Well, that is a fascinating future. And this is going to be a great story to follow. Um, the return of old-fashioned merchandising. I think a lot of people would applaud that. Jonathan, thank you for taking the time to, uh, to be with us today and share your expertise. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to following your story and your onshoring efforts. Well, and I look forward to having you be a very active participant in uh, helping American companies navigate these very, very, very challenging times and giving them the hope and, uh, and, and maybe the understanding and knowledge of what, is, is, what are our options and what can we do. And 
what should our planning be and how do we go out? And that should be all shared knowledge. We're all one country. We're all one people. And thank you. My guest this week, Jonathan Bass, CEO of Home Home and PTM Images. Thank you very much. So no one's ever going to own it all. And with your help, hopefully you'll lead this ship and we'll avoid being the Titanic, but rather being the Queen Mary. That's certainly a much better, as far as analogy goes, I'd much rather be on the Queen Mary than the Titanic. And having people like you on this podcast is our way of bringing education to the industry. So we're going to continue to try to do that. Thank you again for joining us.